Crosspoint Narnia. Thanks for bringing the church into this winter wonderland this morning. Wouldn't that be cool? Church plant, gospel-centered church planting in Narnia. People wouldn't ask if you're Christ-centered. They would ask if you're Aslan-centered, and your response would be, oh, we're very Aslan-centered. If you, if you like magnifying the name of the great lion, you're gonna love this church. You're probably gonna get a lot of that over the next four weeks, just so you know. If we're standing with this kind of backdrop, I'm just gonna keep, keep repping the Chronicles for four weeks to come. If we haven't met, my name's Jamie. I'm one of the pastors of our church, the guy who gets to do most of the preaching. I'm excited to do that this morning for sure as we dive into the season of Advent. For those who may not be familiar with Advent, the church has been doing this thing for roughly 1,700 years. Since the fourth century, the church has been celebrating the season of Advent. That, that word even comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming or arrival. It's essentially meant to focus our attention on the coming of Jesus into the world. Surprise, surprise, right? It, it surely doesn't come as a surprise that we would celebrate his first coming as we look in on a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and, and lying in a manger, but it might come as a surprise that Advent is meant to focus our attention not just on the first coming of Jesus in joyful celebration, but in the second coming of Jesus in hopeful anticipation, longing for his return, just as much as celebrating his arrival that we talk about all the time this time of year. My, my guess is that things are about to get incredibly crazy for most of us, right? There are recipes to be made, there are gifts to buy, there are traditions to uphold, and by God's grace, my prayer for us, a, a fresh outpouring of his spirit to be received. I mean, that, that's the hope of Advent, right? the living God breaking in and breaking through, awaken our, awakening our hearts yet again to the beauty and wonder of who he is and what he has done, is doing, and will do for us in Jesus Christ, revealing to us the wonder of Christmas yet again, helping us to see beyond all the tinsel and all the, the wrapping in celebration of the greatest gift that we've been given, namely God himself a restored relationship with the living God. That's what we celebrate. That's the greatest hope of the gospel, by the way, is that we get God more than all the other secondary benefits of being in union with Jesus Christ. A God who the story of Christmas tells us is not removed from, from the very book that he's authoring, right? Having entered into that very story as its most meaningful character, a God so filled with love, think about this, for his people, that he would clothe himself in a bruisable body so that he could sign the check for our ransom as lost sinners in his blood. Hey, that's the story we're gonna dive into for the next several weeks leading up to Christmas. This wondrous story of the Savior's birth as told in the first couple of chapters of Luke's gospel account. And then we're gonna continue right on into the narrative that follows as we work our way in the months to come through the full story that Luke tells. I won't tell you how long we're gonna be in the book of Luke because I don't wanna scare you off, but I can assure you it will be awesome, amazing, better than any Netflix series you've engaged. With that said, I invite you to, to open up your Bible to Luke chapter one. Good chapter to start with, right? Luke chapter one, that's where we're gonna be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you'll be able to track with where we are in the scriptures up on the screen throughout the course of our time this morning, be it scripture references or various quotes that I'll bring to bear uh, during our time in, in Luke chapter one. Let me do this. Let me just go ahead and, and, and pray for us because we've, we've got a little bit of ground to cover in God's word this morning and, and we'll jump in and get after this thing. 
Heavenly Father, so easy for our hearts to grow cold, particularly to things that we become all too familiar with over the course of time. Perhaps Christmas doesn't make its way to the top of that list, and yet it's possible that, that our hearts would be awakened to all of the other things besides the beauty and wonder of who you are and what you've done for us in Christ this Christmas season as the bow on the gift that is Christmas. Lord, would you, would you fix our gaze on the beauty of who you are this morning? All that you have done, all that you are doing, all that you will do for us in Jesus. Would you, would you open our hearts to the wonder of Christmas yet again? Would you do that miracle, God, as you attend the preaching of your word in power? We invite you to break in. We invite you to break through that we might receive a fresh outpouring of your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. So if you were around a couple years ago, you'll remember this. If you don't remember this, we gotta sit down and work on your memory. We, we journeyed from beginning to end through the book of Acts as a church, which tells the story of essentially a bunch of ordinary people empowered by the extraordinary spirit of God turning the world upside down on its head for the glory of the risen Jesus Christ. Now, we're, we're gonna work our way backwards and we're gonna jump into the prequel, so to speak a journey from beginning to end through the book of Luke. The book of Luke, if you're not incredibly familiar with it, it's a fascinating book of the Bible. Most of us are familiar with it if we sit down and consider some of the stories that come out of the book of Luke. Think about this. Without the book of Luke, we wouldn't have the story of the wee little man Zacchaeus. Without the book of Luke, I'm not even sure we'd have vacation Bible study because of that. Without the book of Luke, we wouldn't have the parable of the good Samaritan or the prodigal son. We wouldn't have the story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus where, where we see Jesus teaching us how to read him in the Old Testament. Luke's gospel account, incredible book of the Bible. It was written likely just a few decades after Jesus's resurrection by the, the man whose name it bears. Many scholars believing that Luke was a, a physician, that he was a man of Gentile descent on the basis of how Paul describes him in Colossians chapter four. You can go back and read a little bit of Paul's language there, uh, even this week, if you'd like. We know that Luke made trips with the apostle Paul, that he was a close friend of Paul's. He was loyal to Paul in the midst of Paul's imprisonment leading up to his martyrdom. We know that Luke was also an incredibly accomplished writer. His use of the Greek language incredibly refined, as we'll even see this morning. Aside from that, we really don't know much about Luke. And I think Luke means it to be that way. Luke's not out to tell a lot about himself. He's very much like John the Baptist in that regard, as we'll see moving forward. I must decrease, Jesus must increase. That's how Luke writes his gospel account. That's how Luke writes the book of Acts. It tells a lot about Jesus. In fact, and this might blow some of our minds, the book of Luke and the book of Acts together make up more content than all of Paul's letters combined. And they're all about Jesus his entrance into the world, his teaching, ministry, and miracles, his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, to be sure the same theology and doctrine that Paul drives out in those letters of his, but told here in narrative form, which is gonna be a lot of fun as we work our way through this book of the Bible, because we get to dream a little bit. We get to put ourselves in the shoes of the characters and imagine what they might have seen. We're gonna do some of that this morning, and I think it'll bring the Bible to life. If I could kind of sum it up, 
this two-part series. In the book of Luke, we read about what Jesus taught and did on earth. In the book of Acts, we read about what Jesus taught and did from heaven, risen, ascended. Both books declaring the hope of a God whose zealous ambition is to seek and save the lost. A God so overcome with love, famous in Luke's gospel account, particularly for those on the fringes of society. As Luke tells the story of this messianic king having come to rescue the poor and the downcast. I love the way R.T. France describes Luke's gospel account in his commentary. He says, Luke's story is famous for its broad sympathy with the marginalized and the disadvantaged, the poor and the sick, the harassed and the demon-possessed, widows and bereaved parents, women and children, the social underworld, the mafia of tax collectors and sinners, the Gentiles, and even, he says, even the Samaritans. To all in their different needs, salvation and wholeness came through the ministry of Jesus who came to proclaim good news to the poor. And Luke took delight in using their stories to illustrate the revolutionary ideals of the Magnificat, the dawning kingdom of God in which the last will be first and the first last. That's what makes the, the gospel as told through the lens of, of Luke's writing unique. And that's the story that we're gonna dive into as we move forward as a church. It's that great story that you and I get to step into the pages of for the months to come. If you pick up in verse one of chapter one, Luke tells us what a great word to start any book with. Inasmuch, you gotta love it from the start. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have, uh, of the word have delivered to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Such complex writing that I can't even read it from start to finish without messing it up, right? The, these first four verses, they're a single sentence in the original Greek, considered by many scholars to not only be one of the most well-written sentences in the entire New Testament, but some of the finest Greek in all of the first century literary world. In other words, what I believe is that Luke wants the reader to know right out of the gate that he takes the responsibility of telling this story incredibly seriously. He's not messing around. The, the original reader here described as most excellent Theophilus. I'm gonna start addressing you guys with, with those two words, most excellent and then whatever your name is. So awesome. Most excellent Theophilus, a name that we only see here in scripture and then at the beginning of the book of Acts, and that's it. We, we have no idea who Theophilus is. The name itself, we know it means lover of God or beloved of God, so that some would argue that Theophilus is a real person. In this case, because Luke addresses him as most excellent, perhaps a prominent member of society. But there are other scholars that believe that that name Theophilus is actually a code name for the church as the church is most surely the beloved of God. Either way, Luke writes that the reader might have certainty, he says. In the words of one commentator, Luke's gospel account is the gospel of knowing for sure. The gospel of knowing for sure. Luke having composed this writing that, that people might have certainty, people including you and me regarding the son of man who came to seek and save the lost as Luke will describe Jesus in chapter 19, verse 10. 
We know that that there were several written collections of Jesus's words and works circulating in, in Luke's day, written by those who had seen Jesus with their very own eyes. Luke had not personally witnessed the, the miracles and ministry of Jesus himself, and yet he sensed the Holy Spirit calling him to put pen to paper. And so he committed himself to the careful investigation of Jesus's life teaching and ministry, consulting eyewitnesses and traditions with the professionalism of an investigative journalist, you could say in an effort, verse one, to compile an orderly, reliable account of his own concerning the things that have been accomplished. That word accomplished also meaning fulfilled. That's promise language, meaning that that Luke's writing is not simply a historical account, though it is surely that, right? We get Throughout this gospel account, things said like chapter one, verse five, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, Go look him up. He was a real leader, Luke says. Chapter two, verse one. In in those days, the decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Chapter two, verse two. When Quirinius was governor of Syria. Chapter three, verse one. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Luke is throwing out real people, real names, real dates. He wants to make very clear that, that his writing is fact, not fiction, to be sure. But more than that, It's a declaration of Jesus as the fulfillment of God's redemptive promises of old. If you pick up in verse five, Luke says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abiha, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Luke's gospel account, it opens up with a couple of birth announcements. First, you get the foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist, the, the one who would prepare the way of the Lord. And then you get the foretelling of the birth of Jesus, Christ the Lord himself. It's really incredible if you think about it. You have Luke telling this great story of God's rescue mission, the coming of the promised Messiah, and where does he zoom the lens? But on the the two most unlikely of people, right? You have an older barren woman by the name of Elizabeth and a young virgin girl by the name of Mary. As my two daughters say all the time, both with babies in their bellies. They don't say that all the time, but when they see a pregnant woman, they say it. Both a barren and a virgin womb made fertile, the miraculous feat of almighty God. That's how Luke starts it out, and it really should come as no surprise if we read the Old Testament, right? Because we see God doing it all the time, showing himself victorious in apparent defeat, showing his power in human weakness, fulfilling his promises through the the small, lowly nation of, of Israel, establishing a throne through the young shepherd boy David, preserving the messianic line through younger brothers, not firstborn sons, through barren women. It's the story of God, reminding us that his ways are higher than our ways, that he's where the power lies, that he's where the redemption lies. You use some of that songs of ascent language, right? we, we might expect, we should expect children like olive shoots around the table of this priestly family, a quiver of arrows, so to speak. I mean, after all, verse six, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. 
It's a declaration that, that our sufferings are not always a result of our own sin, that sometimes our sufferings are part of a greater tapestry that God is redemptively weaving. And our perspective is to look at the underside as we talked about in Ecclesiastes and see nothing but the knots. God sees something bigger. If you look at verse eight, he goes on to say, now while he, Zechariah, was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. All right, this is a winning lottery ticket. This is what Luke's describing here. In Zechariah's day, you had upwards, according to scholars, of 8,000 priests living in Palestine, in the Palestinian area around Jerusalem. 8,000 priests, right? That's a lot of pastors. And they were all divided into 24 divisions, each with a few hundred priests, given temple responsibilities, each of those divisions, only two weeks out of the year. The other 50, they were not on the scene, as we see the scene here. And during those two weeks, it was essentially the role of the dice as to who might get the privilege among those several hundred priests in any one division of offering incense. I mean, literally, you're talking about a once in a lifetime opportunity because you couldn't do it a second time. You were ineligible once you had done it once in your life. Some priests never getting the shot to do it once in their lifetime. Right, this, was, this was Zechariah's lucky day. This is a big moment for him. The lot fell on him. He was given the honor and privilege of, of entering the holy place in the temple, just short of the holy of holies and burning incense during the temple sacrifice. It's where you get to step into the character's shoes. You can just imagine in the most holy place on the basis of what we know about the description of that atmosphere that Zechariah would have seen the lampstand. He would have seen the bread of the presence, unaware that his son would someday prepare the way of the Lord, the true light and the true bread, the light of the world, bread of life, he would have had the temple curtain in full view, that curtain separating the holy place from the holy of holies, the very curtain that on the day of Jesus's crucifixion would be torn from top to bottom, declaring Jesus, the greater Zechariah, the greater priest to come to be the way back into the presence of God. You just picture Zechariah surrounded by the shadows of God's covenant promises, praying for the fulfillment of those promises in this gloriously holy moment when we're told, verse 11, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And as if standing in the holy place wasn't an incredible enough experience to begin with, right? All of a sudden an angel of the Lord appears to add holiness on top of holiness. The angel Gabriel, Luke tells us, and Zechariah is stricken with fear as any of us would have been too. And rightly so, right? If you think about 
where we're picking up this story of redemption, Zechariah receives a message from the Lord through his messenger after 400 years of silence on God's part. 400 years of God having gone dark. You thought the last nine months were taking forever to get through. 400 years of no prophet speaking on behalf of of God, no word from the Lord, and now out of that darkness, the blinding light of the angel Gabriel, having come with a divine promise, a word from God, after all that silence, that Elizabeth would bear a son, a living, breathing miracle, to be given the name John. Even that in and of itself is a reminder that God knows us by name. A name here meaning God has been gracious or God has shown favor. It's a declaration not only of of God's grace in making a barren womb fertile, but also of the grace and favor that the Lord would pour out upon his people through the ministry of John and the Messiah Jesus to follow. The angel would go on to say in, in verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness, Zechariah, and many will rejoice at your son's birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. John the Baptist, this this miracle baby was to be committed to the Lord in lifelong faithfulness to a Nazarite vow, very similar to Samson. No consuming of, of strong drink so that people would know that it was the spirit talking, not the booze in pertaining to John's ministry. Spirit of God indwelling him from his mother's womb, setting him apart for the Lord's work. In this case, the greatest of revivals, the calling of Israel to repentance in preparation to meet their God in the coming of his great kingdom. A prophetic messenger, as the angel says, a second Elijah, the forerunner called to to herald, to declare the coming of the Messiah, to prepare the way of the Lord. In fulfillment, amazingly, in fulfillment, if you go back and read Malachi chapters three and four, you'll see very similar language to what you see in these verses so that these words are a fulfillment of the final words of Old Testament prophecy 400 years later. God's picking up the story right where he left it off. After all those years of fighting not to lose heart, 400 years of anticipation and longing Some of us have been fighting not to lose heart for the last few months. After all those years, anticipation, longing for God to fix what's broken, to do something, God, and now the promise of joy and gladness, verse 14. The promise of covenant restoration, the promise of covenant renewal, the promise of a messenger and a Messiah to come, joy to the world. And Zechariah said, this is amazing, let's do this. That's not what Zechariah said. Verse 18, he said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God. 
And I was sent to speak to you and to bring to you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which would be fulfilled in their time. It'd be easy for us to look at Zechariah and say, what a bonehead. He's dumbfounded by the promise of a son as would many of us be if we were in his circumstantial shoes, right? What is he doing? He's interpreting God's word through the lens of his circumstances, old age and barrenness, rather than interpreting his circumstances through the lens of God's word. In disbelief, though he receives the promise from an angel sent from the Lord himself to proclaim this good news, right? When, it, when an angel of the Lord visits you and tells you something, the appropriate response is to believe, just so you know. If, you, if an angel comes and hangs out at your, your house this Christmas season, believe what he says. Real simple, right? Especially, you could argue, when you add to that miraculous encounter that Zechariah also had the scriptures filled with similar stories of divine promises made and fulfilled. You have Sarah's bearing of Isaac in old age. You have Hannah's bearing of Samuel after years of barrenness. We don't need the supernatural. We have the word of God. The, the problem for Zechariah I mean, it's really the same problem that goes back to the very dawn of human existence, does it not? Did God really say? Adam and Eve chose not to believe God's word, as did Zechariah through the Lord's angelic messenger, as do we when we live our lives in functional unbelief. I mean, the truth is, and most of us know this, the enemy would love nothing more than for you and I to question God's word and promises. For, for us to evaluate our experiences and our subjective feelings above the authority of Scripture, sola experientia rather than sola scriptura. Right? None of us is exempt from that daily fight to trust God's word, to trust God's promises. We are the dad in Mark's gospel account. Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. I'm a mixed bag. Right? None of us exempt from that struggle. After all, think about this. Zechariah was a priest standing in the very temple of God. He's a reminder that even the, the most devout believers should never let their guard down when it comes to the temptation to question the word of the Lord. Luke goes on to tell us in verse 21, and the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. It shouldn't be taking so long. Is he dead? What's going on in there? And when he came out, verse 22, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And Zechariah, he wanted a sign and he got it, didn't he? unable to pronounce the priestly blessing upon God's people and exiting the temple, a reminder that your sin influences others around you, unable to speak until the promise of a son was fulfilled, nine months of silence, roughly the same amount of time we've been living with COVID-19. You imagine not talking since that all began? It might actually be a better society. The, the angel came, came 
think about this for a second. The angel of the Lord came to announce that the waiting was over and due to his unbelief, Zechariah is now forced to wait. And that's the, that is the perfect fatherly discipline of the Lord, is it not? In perfecting a deeper faith in this elder son, mind you, it would have been appropriate to God, though Zechariah had not entered the holy of holies with a rope attached to his ankle in case he died, it would have been just of God to have killed Zechariah on the spot. You don't believe an angel of the Lord, even in the most holy place? That's it, brother. The muteness of Zechariah for nine months is the kindness of God. Perfect fatherly discipline. Some might ask, and I mean, I think it'd be a fair question. Like, what, what, what is Luke doing? I mean, what, what is he thinking? I mean, is he, is he trying to get us on board here? Like, what? why not leave this part of the story out? Why not jump straight from verse 17, the promise, to verse 24, the pregnancy? I mean, this is supposed to be a happy story, a joyful story, a story of redemption, a story of hope which is why I think it's so critical coming back to verses one through four to know the purpose of what Luke is writing for. You gotta remember, this is the gospel of knowing for sure. Right? Luke wants us to believe. He wants us to, to sit with the story of Zechariah in the temple and ask the question of, do I take the Lord at his word? Do I trust in his promises? Do I trust in the ultimate fulfillment of those promises in Jesus? And even more than that, it's an invitation to go tell the world with the unmuted voice that God's given us. To, to go, we sing it all the time this time of year. Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. We haven't been muted. Our God's a wonder working God, bringing forth life from barren places. It's what he does, it's who he is. And we are the great trumpeteers, the great heralds, of that good news, just like the angel of the Lord. We're told in verses 24 and 25, closing out this morning's passage, that after these days, Zechariah's wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Put your shoes in, yourself in Elizabeth's shoes. All those years, all those decades, people looking down on her in her barrenness, questioning her godliness, assuming the Lord's curse upon her. And just like that, in the blink of an eye, the kind of blink that will bring Jesus back a second time, just like that, Elizabeth's reproach is taken away. Gone. She responds in thanks and praise, giving us a beautiful picture of the gospel in all of this, right? God having overcome her disgrace by his grace. This whole thing screams gospel. We know as Christians that God has overcome our shame and disgrace as lost sinners in the sending of his son to bear our reproach. The same word you see in verse 25, it's the same word you see in Hebrews 13, 13, where the author of Hebrews talks about Jesus being taken outside the camp to bear the shame that was ours to bear, taking our uncleanness upon himself that we might be declared clean. We celebrate 
as Christians, Jesus bearing the disgrace of our sin on the cross in order to deal with the darkest shame of our soul, a darker shame than Elizabeth could have ever known on the basis of just her barrenness. That Jesus came to redeem us from the curse. He came to give hope to the hopeless, love to the unlovable, joy to the despairing, peace to the anxiety-ridden, to use all those Advent words we use this time of year, that Jesus is our hope. He's the embodiment of love. He's the fountain of everlasting joy. He's the prince. He's the king of peace. I, I think I think Luke's question to us this morning, if he were preaching his own words in this gathering of God's people, I, th I think he would ask just a couple of simple questions. I think he would ask, do you know Jesus? And I think he would ask, do you long to know him more? Those are the questions that we're presented with, and not just in this morning's passage, but throughout the course of, of this great story that Luke is gonna tell. If your answer to those questions is, yeah, I wanna know Jesus. I wanna know Jesus more. You're in a great place. Philip Ryken says in his commentary on this book of the Bible, he says, Luke's gospel is for anyone who needs to know Jesus. It is for people who have never met Jesus before and for people who need to meet him again as if for the very first time. It is for people who aren't quite sure about Jesus, for people who are just starting to trust him, and for people who have known him a long time but still need to become more secure in their faith. It is for anyone, he says, who wants to know for sure. Right? Luke composed this, this writing that we might know, that we might have certainty not a certainty in our own religious performance, which can only leave us doubting in the end. I love to bring this Christmas imagery to bear because I think it's so profound that the gospel doesn't declare naughty and nice lists. It declares that there's a naughty list and there's Jesus Christ. He's the only one on the nice list who stooped down and entered into the slums of our world to rescue naughty people like you and me so that we could be ushered into the very presence of the living God in eternal joy. If the certainty that we're looking for is a certainty based on ourselves and how good we are, we're done for. The good news is that's not the message of Christmas. The message of Christmas is not a message of self-rescue. It's a message of Jesus, our rescuer, the sure knowledge that Luke is after for us is a sure knowledge of Jesus Christ and the salvation that comes by grace through faith in him. So that I believe Luke would say to us this morning, you can be sure of God's promises, you can be sure of God's word, you can be sure of the story of Christmas, Emmanuel, God with us. You can be sure of the one who came to seek and save the lost, you can be sure of Jesus. You wanna be sure of Jesus? You wanna be more sure of Jesus? You wanna fall more in love with Jesus? You should be really excited about the months to come as we work our way through this incredible book of the Bible.